You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Um, so right on. I'm glad that you guys are here. I see a couple of visitors are here. We are very, very glad to have you guys. A couple of people, a couple of my coworkers are here. I'm sure they could tell you some stories of me doing something very stupid at work. Um, but we're not going to let them up here to do that anyway. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I have a mic, and that means I have control of who gets the mic. Um, but this evening, all right, this evening, we're going to continue through uh, our study in the book of Acts. Um, and we've been doing this sermon series since the beginning of the summer. If you're new and you're kind of dropping in for the first time, uh, it's called The People of God. Right? And, and what we're really doing is we're taking a look at the book of Acts. And in doing that, we're, we're seeing how the early church lived. Right, well, what the lives of the first Christians ever looked like, right? Starting with the apostles and then preaching the gospel and thousands of people converting and beginning to follow Jesus. What did they do? How did they think? Um, how did they interact with one another? Um, and in looking at that, um, what I hope that you all have been doing and something that I've been doing as I study this is um, the goal in this is that we would measure our lives against um, what the Bible commends in the church as godly living. Um, and in doing that, right, so God is pleased with the church in Acts living this certain way. And then as we see that, we would try to bring our lives in line with that. It's um, kind of how we should always be reading the Bible, right? What pleases the Lord? What displeases the Lord? What does he want me to believe? Um, what does he want me to abstain from? Those kinds of things. And then execute them because we love the Lord and we want to live a life that pleases him. Um, so in, in this study, uh, we come to this evening. And tonight we're going to be talking about generosity. All right? So get your wallets out, ladies and gentlemen. I need a raise. Um, no, no jokes. Is that creepy? Are there too many televangelists? They're like, that's not funny anymore? Um, no, you're right. But, right, so generosity. Something you'll see if you ever read the book of Acts. I really hope that you guys are. Uh, I hope you guys are reading your Bible. If you read the book of Acts, you're, you'll see that the early church was ridiculously tight-knit. Right? Like, they lived, be, like lived this way. Like, they were super tight because they were actually family. It wasn't that they were like a family. They understood, you know, Jesus has brought us near to God. God is our Father. So we are all brothers and sisters, right? So they took care of one another. Um, they, they went out of their way all the time to help other believers. And they would do it in any way that they could. They were always there for one another, just like family would be. Um, and I really, I want that to be said of Revolution Church. You know, that like, like just throwing this out there, like my goal as a pastor is not to get like a thousand people in this building. It's really not, like that'd be awesome. Right? Like, that, that really would. I would love to see the gospel just, like, people just catch fire um, in the East End, right? Um, and, and come to know Jesus, right? I didn't mean actually catch fire in the East End. That would be awful, wouldn't it? No, I saw some of your looks. Like, you were like, did he just say that? Yeah, yeah I don't want anyone to, like, go aflame. Uh, right? But, like, I would love to see a ton of people convert and our church just explode. Um, but more than that, I... I I would love to see you know, whoever that God sovereignly brings here into our congregation truly be loved, truly come to know Christ, and us truly be a family to them. Um, and also be that way to all the, all the believers who are already here. I really want what was said of the early church to be said of us. Um, but in talking about the generous lives of the first Christians this evening that we're going to be doing, um, in doing that, we're also going to take a look at the mission of the church. All right, so this is going to be really fun for me. I'm going to get to make an argument later. This is going to be awesome. I love to argue. Um, and we're going to look at the mission of the early church and see how living open-handedly with our resources is a great way for us to see the mission of the church fulfilled. 
Um, so like I said, I'm going to make an argument this evening, so I'm going to ask you to hang in there with me at least for like the first third or so of this sermon, because I'm going to draw some lines throughout the Bible and make some arguments that might require you to pay a little bit closer attention than normal, right? I'm not saying this is going to fly over everyone's head, it's not like that, but you just follow along with me. Um, so what I've been praying all week is that I would be clear and concise and that we would all uh, be eager to hear God's word taught. Right? There's a ministry of preaching, and there's also a ministry of listening to the word, like Brandon said earlier, that you are all engaged in. Um, so without any more for way of an intro, we're in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35 this evening. Uh, it's going to be here on the projector. Um, also, if you're new here, there are blue Bibles in the backs of those pews. Take one home with you if you don't have a Bible, or the Bible you have is hard to read. All right, so Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. It's very short. Luke writes, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Let's pray real quick. Uh, Father, um, pour your Holy Spirit out in extra measure this evening. Um, God, give us hearts to receive your word. Um, give us ears to hear your word and understand. Um, speak through me. Use me, use me as, a, as a mouthpiece um, for your truth. Show yourself to be supreme. Um, show us everything that we are not in you. And then give us a desire to want to be like you. If there are any unbelievers here, Father, please begin to change their hearts. Bring them to true faith. Bring them to true repentance. And for the believers here, Father, take this message from your scripture and and, and begin to break us open. Turn our hearts from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh so that we would want to be like you. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what do we see here in that passage? All right. The immediate thing, obviously, that you saw, if you were listening at all, is that the believers were generous towards one another, right? Um, but why? Right? That's always like and Jesus, right? Like that's your, like your Sunday school answer, right? For certain. Um, but like my question whenever I read the Bible is, what is the reason? Every time that I see an action, every time I see something taught, why did they do what they do, right? Because every action always has a motivation behind it, right? Whether good or bad, every action always has a motivation. Um, so I see a chain reaction in this passage that I want us to consider this evening, right? In, in the first verse, verse 32, it says they were united, all the believers were united in heart and mind. The second thing we see also in verse 32 is they considered what they owned to not actually be theirs. And the third thing we see is that there was no needy among them because of the actions that they were willing to take with their possessions, not counting it as belonging to them, but they would sell it so that they could help others, right? So they're united in heart and mind, considered what they owned to not actually be theirs. And thirdly, there was no needy among them because that mindset led them into action. And what I want to do is I want to unpack this chain of events, this chain of thought um, and action, and see how this works together, right? So there's kind of the outline for what we're going to try to do this evening. Um, so right off the rip, we said they were united in heart and mind. There's a bug. It's huge. I'm going to try to ignore that. Um, anyone else afraid of bugs? Like legit? Like I don't even like bug Pokemon. Like they, like they freak me out. Yeah. Anyway. Um, that's not funny, Brandon. 
Um, so they, okay, so it says that they were united in heart and mind, um, which for certain is one way that the Bible um, says that they really loved and cared for each other. Right? So they're of one heart and mind. They're, they're actually living out Jesus' command to his disciples where he says, love one another. Right? And in loving one another, you'll show the world that you're my disciples. Right? And they're also living out Jesus' other command, to love your neighbor as yourself, which is actually found in the Old Testament as well. Um, so that they're certainly doing that whenever it says that they were united in heart and mind. But I think that we can take this idea of being united in this way back a step further. Right? And if you've, if you've been coming to Rev very long, you're going to see this real clear. Um, I think that they were united in heart and mind towards each other because they were first united together in their love for God. Right? Like, so as, Christ, as Christians, they, like we, right, they love the Lord. Like, I, sometimes we can hear the gospel. We can hear that this, this message that Jesus Christ has saved us. That he has taken all of the punishment for all of the sin that we would ever commit, and he paid for it on the cross. The Bible says he canceled the record of our debt by nailing it to the cross. Right? I believe that's Colossians chapter 1. Right? Like We hear that message, and it's very easy for us to glaze over because we hear it day in and day out. But like, just for a moment, just consider that. We deserve nothing. And he gives us everything in Jesus. We deserve to go to hell, and yet he gives us salvation through Jesus. So God has saved us, and he's ransomed us by the sacrifice of Christ in our place, right? And and, and this should result in just ridiculous gratitude. We we say this a lot at Rev. This should result in gratitude from us. This is why we want to live the lives that that we live. This is why we want to live in obedience to Jesus, because we're so overwhelmed with the fact that God would love sinners like us in in this way that he would send Jesus to die for us, Right? So if this creates overwhelming gratitude in us, because it certainly did for the believers in Acts in this passage that we were looking at, this gratitude for God's grace then creates in us a desire to do His will. Right? Like I said, this is why we live the lives we live. And the Bible tells us that God has a will for His redeemed people. Right? He has a will for His church. So He has a mission for us. Right? So what I'm doing, argument real quick, a united love for God results in a united mission as God's people, because God's people want to do his will, because they have so much gratitude towards him, all right? And here's my argument, or here's just a statement. (laughs) God's mission for the church is this, to display who God is to the world and to each other, right? Another way we could say this is to display the glory of God, And here's why I think that that's the mission of the church. And before I get into it, if you don't see this from the scriptures, then don't believe it, right? I'm kind of stepping out onto my own opinion here, and I want to recognize that in front of all of you guys here. Um, I think that this is sound. Obviously, I I believe uh, what I'm getting ready to tell you guys, or I wouldn't be saying it. But if you don't see this from the scripture, if it's not plain to you, um, then then just disregard this. Uh, Take it for what it's worth. right, so here's my argument for why I believe that God's design for the church, God's mission for the church is that we would display who he is. First thing, man was created in God's image, right? Genesis, I believe it's, it's chapter 2 or, or chapter two or 3, says that in his image, God's image, he made them. Male and female, he made them in, in, in reference to Adam and Eve. Um, so man is created in God's image, which, which means this. Um, we have certain attributes in us that mirror the characteristics of God, right? Like, God is the embodiment of justice, so what do we want? We want justice, right? Whenever we see someone being stolen off of, right, we say, well, 
if that should end, you should get your stuff back. Is why we have a legal system, right? We know that God is the embodiment of love, so we show love to our children, and we show love to our spouses, right? Our boyfriends and girlfriends, things like that. Um, so man being created in God's image means that we have characteristics of him in us, and he made us that way in his image so that we could mirror forth who he is. But man sinned. That brings us to our second point. But man sinned, and what sin does is it distorts that image of God in us. So we no longer display who he is perfectly. Right? And you can see this right off the rip in, in Genesis. We see Adam and Eve, for all we know, you know, obviously sin hadn't entered the world yet, so they're perfectly loving one another like a husband and wife are supposed to, imaging forth the love of God towards his creation. And then as soon as sin enters the world, Adam blame shifts. God says, hey, Adam, what happened? It was her. Right? It wasn't me. It was her. Right? So he's, he's clearly, like, he's trying to put all responsibility on her. He just throws his wife under the bus, right? He's not loving her properly anymore. Right? So right off the rip, we can see that the image of God is distorted. This love that we're supposed to show towards one another, uh, a little bit further on in Genesis, we see Cain and Abel, where Cain murders his brother Abel. Right? So there's hatred in people now. Right? So sin distorts that image of God in us that we were supposed to show the world. All right? So that, is all, that aside, man still has inherent worth because of that image. But in our unconverted state, right, before we come to know Christ, we don't display who God is well at all because we're so marred by sin. And then, okay, so God created man for his image. Man sinned, and then we skip way far ahead, and we see Jesus comes to earth and dies for the church. Right? And in dying for the church, he frees all of those who would ever put their faith in him. He frees us from sin's penalty and sin's power. Right? Romans chapter 6 says you know, he, he takes all of our punishment that we deserve in our place, and we're no longer slaves to sin anymore. But instead of being slaves to sin, we're now slaves to righteousness. Right? So we're made to be free from sin, which results in us being a slave to righteousness. All because of what Jesus did. Now, another way that we can say that we're slaves to righteousness is that we are being conformed to Christ's image. Right? Romans 8.29 says, um, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Right? So that means God saved us. Right? Those whom he foreknew, he set his love on us from eternity past. He predestined us to come to faith in Jesus. Why? so that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus, being set free from sin, that we would start to be more and more like Christ. Right? And as we live in harmony with what God desires, we do become more and more like Jesus. And here was the, the coolest part of all this. Conformity to Christ's image is mirroring God. Right? Jesus Christ, whenever he was on earth, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Right? And in Colossians, Paul says that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. So the more we become like Jesus, the more we actually begin to mirror forth who God is, like we were supposed to in the beginning. Right? This, was, this blew me open, right? And just a side note, see here how God brings restoration about. Right? Like, he doesn't just throw us away whenever we failed as a human race. Like, he created us to display who he is, and we failed, but instead of trashing us, he restores, right? he restores us so that we can do what was intended anyway. Right? I think that's just a beautiful idea. Right? So this was God's design for his church, that he would redeem us from the slavery to sin, bring us to be more like Christ, and in doing so, we would reflect who God the Father is because we're being more like Jesus. 
who is the visible image of the invisible God. All right? So this has always been God's mission for his people. Right? Again, since Genesis, right? But even further, or not further back, but going a little bit on in the Bible, you can actually look at Israel in the Old Testament and see that this is God's design for his people, that we would display who he is. A frequently repeated thing in Leviticus, a book of, all of, God, of a lot of God's law to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, is he says, be holy, for I am holy. Right? Holy means, if you, if you, if you didn't grow up in church, uh, holy means to be set apart. So he's saying, live a way that is set apart from other people. Live differently from other people. Why? Because I am totally unique and totally different from them. They don't know me. They're sinners. right? They've not been forgiven for their sins. So you must be different like I am different is what God tells his people. So again, God desires his people to live differently from the rest of the world. And in doing that, they would show the uniqueness of God. So another way we can say this is God's design is that we would be his representatives on earth. Right? And, and this, is, this was really cool to me. This is actually why God gives us commands in the Bible. That we could display who he is. Right? This is why he gives us law in the Old Testament. Right? All of his commands given to us are designed to produce lives in us that communicate his glory. Right? And whenever we live in obedience to his commands, our, live, our lives actually begin to declare things about God. Now, this kind of cracked me open. I was talking to a couple people about it Friday. This, this blew me away. Um, as we obey God we actually begin to declare things about God. Th- think about this. First command, no other gods before me, right? Put God first above all things, no false gods. What are we declaring if we actually live that way? We're declaring that there is one God, right? And not only that, but he is utterly unique from everything else. All other gods are false. There is one God, and he is worthy of our undivided attention. He is worthy of our complete obedience because he is so unique. He is the creator God. Right? He's powerful. Right? So if we obey the first commandment and put no, nothing before God, we, we declare that to the world. Um, uh, other things uh, in the Old Testament, it says that like, we shouldn't commit adultery, which means you shouldn't sleep with someone who's not your wife. Though in marriage, we should be sexually pure. And even if you're not married, you should be sexually pure. Right? I don't want to leave you any wiggle room there, you bunch of pagans. Um, but in, in declare, yeah, I know how you are. I was unmarried for a season, um, 22 years, 23 years to be exact. Um, memory like a steel trap. Um, right, but, but if we live sexually pure lives, right, and we're faithful to our spouses or we're saving ourselves for our spouses, what are we declaring about God? God is faithful to his people, right? And I'm, I'm imaging that forth by being faithful to my spouse, right? We see God tells us to forgive our enemies. He says it in the Old Testament, forgive people. What does that communicate about God? Well, I forgive because God is the reconciler of men. He reconciles men back to himself. God tells us to be honest, right? Don't lie, right? What is that saying? Whenever we live that way, we're saying God is the source of truth and there is no deceit in him whatsoever. And I want to be like that. He says, show no partiality, right? Don't be prejudiced against people. Why? Because whenever we live that way, we're saying God is the embodiment of justice and he is always fair, right? So those are just a few examples. We could do this all the time, but there's like over 300 laws in the Old Testament. We don't have time for all that, right? But all of God's commands... When obeyed, display who God is. But just like Adam and Eve failed, Israel failed to do this as well. Right? All those laws that he gave to the Jewish people, they failed to display who God is perfectly. And they would turn from him and do their own thing. Um, but then here's what's, what's glorious about God. Jesus came to earth 
to be the ultimate representative of God's glory. Right? We say that Jesus perfectly obeyed God. Right? He was sinless. Well, what does that mean then? If our obedience to God communicates who God is, and Jesus was perfectly obedient to God, then that means Jesus is the perfect image of who God is. This is why you can say, if you've seen me, then you've seen my Father. Right? And then he redeemed us. He saved us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And now, as those who have been redeemed by Christ, we seek to imitate Jesus. Right? So being like Jesus is imaging who God is, which is the mission of the church. I know I've thrown a lot at you in the last, like, 20 minutes, and you're doing awesome. I'm really proud of you guys. No one's fallen asleep yet, right? But I said all of that because I, I had to set the stage a lot because this is what we see being done in this text, right? We see believers united in a mission to accomplish the goal of displaying who God is. That's really what I think that they're doing here, right? Again, they believe the gospel that Jesus Christ has saved them. And he saved them by making himself the sacrifice for sin. That he would satisfy the wrath of God for all of those who would believe. So they believe the gospel. And the gospel expresses the glory of God in self-sacrificial service. Right? Everyone knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? He gave his son. He loved his son from the foundation of the world. Jesus talks about it in, in, in his prayers. Right? He's like, you love me. You've always loved me. And God says, I will give him up. I'll actually punish him for you whenever you're the one who deserves to be punished. So God is very much self-sacrificial. And they believe this about God. This is an incredibly powerful and unique aspect of God as well. And this will all tie together in a little bit. He condescends to serve man through Jesus Christ. He makes himself low through Jesus, in order to serve people who don't even deserve it to begin with. Right? And, and I think the believers in this passage, they believe that God has, has done this, and believing that has produced a heart. Right? It's produced this big heart change in the believers. And, and, and what's changed is, is how they view, in this passage specifically, is how they view their resources. Right, this heart change that God is self-sacrificial and my mission is to display who he is makes them look at their money and, and, their, and their houses and their land differently. Right? It makes them start to say, my stuff really isn't my stuff then. Right? God has given it to me. Why? So that I can be self-sacrificial towards others like he is sacrificial towards me. I think that that's what, what changed in them. Right? Like these early Christians, in light of the self-sacrificial nature of God and wanting to display that, they become completely consumed. Right? Like nothing is too much to ask of them to do or to give anymore because they want to be just like this God who has loved them and sacrificed for them. Right? This is kind of like, uh, like my grandpa. Right? Um, he owns Mule Town Minimart. If you've never been there, you should come and support me and five other people in this church right now. Um, give us your money because we can use it um, to the glory of God, of course. Um, right? But my grandfather, what, what, uh, and this is all tying in because I said like nothing is too much to ask of these people to realize their goal of displaying the glory of God. But my grandpa, whenever he bought the store um, in Minford back in the 80s, um, he didn't have a whole lot of money. Um, I'm not saying he was broke or anything, but he, he didn't have very much money. And he had actually put his house up um, in order to, to get the money, like to get the loan to buy the store, right? Um, so that meant that if he did not succeed in his goal, 
he and my mom and my aunt and my grandmother would then become homeless, right? That's what happens whenever you put your house up uh, on a loan. Uh, and, and he did that, but he also, he didn't care to do that, right? Because he said, I want this store. I want to carve this piece of Minford. Why Minford? I don't know. But I want to carve this piece of Minford out for myself, and I want to start a business, and I want to be successful. That was his dream. That was his goal, and he was willing to do anything to meet it. He was consumed. That was my grandfather's mission. And he didn't care what it cost him to see that mission realized. I said that because the church was consumed with their mission to display the glory of God. So they became willing to sell their stuff. Right? They became willing. Whatever it takes, I want to show the world God's self-sacrificial character. So I look at my possessions differently. Just like my grandfather began to view his possessions differently and says, I'm willing to potentially lose this because I have a goal that I want to meet. Right? So this... This heart change then, we can see, wasn't just a change in perspective, right? It wasn't just like they got like, these like touchy-feely, believey things where they're like, oh, that'd be really good if we were self-sacrificial, right? It wasn't just talk for the New Testament believers. This kind of heart change where they see the self-sacrificial nature of God leads to action, right? Jesus Christ says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So like change of heart results in a change in what our hands do. And what do we see? The believers actually become compassionate towards one another. And compassion is, is just love that works, Right? It's like in the Bible we see Jesus had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he begins to teach them. His compassion moves them to do something. We see the good Samaritan had compassion towards this dying Jew on the side of the road, and he moves to act to save him, to help him. Right? And, and God, again, I'm, I'm going to keep circling back to this. God is the epitome of compassionate. Like, I really want us to see this. He saw our situation of desperate need, that we couldn't save ourselves, that we were condemned to hell and under his wrath for all of the times that we have disobeyed him. He saw that we need a savior. And then what did he do? He acted through Jesus to meet the need. Like, God saw our need and then involved himself. He didn't say, well, that sucks, right? He actually said, no, like, I'm going to send my son and give up my son in order to save them. Right? So the believers see God's glory in this, in his compassionate heart, and then it changed their hearts and it led them to act in generosity and service towards one another. Now, this text obviously is speaking about how we should view our resources. So I want us to consider generosity. Right? Um, generosity is one of the ways that God commands his people to image who he is. And we see that in, in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, I want to read this to you. This is Moses talking to the Israelites before they're going to go into Canaan. It says, but if there are any poor Israelites in your town, when you arrive in the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Instead, be generous and lend them whatever they need. Do not be mean-spirited and refuse someone a loan because the year of canceling debts is close at hand. If you refuse to make the loan and the needy person cries out to the Lord, you will be considered guilty of sin. Give generously to the poor, not grudgingly, for the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. There will always be some in the land who are poor. That is why I'm commanding you to share freely with the poor and with other Israelites in need. So what do we see here? Principles about generosity that, that God's giving us from the Old Testament and in the New Testament, right? Is, is to be open-handed. What I thought was really cool here is God saying to, to not be generous towards someone in need is actually not just holding on to your money and closing your fist, but it's actually hardening your heart towards that person, that you won't be compassionate. Right? Our heart should bleed for people whenever we see that they are in need. And then Jesus or not Jesus, and then Moses said in the Old Testament, not to respect, not to expect repayment. 
right? If the year of canceling debts is close, which means that they wouldn't have to pay you back, he's like, you still make them the loan, right? You still be generous towards them, right? Why? Because you're doing it from a heart to serve. Why? Because you have received a gift from the Lord, right? Everything that you have has been a gift from God, right? So this is true godly generosity that we see in Deuteronomy, and it displays the genuine care that God has for us. Right? And Jesus Christ is the most perfect example of that generosity that God gives towards us. 2 Corinthians 8 9, Paul says this about Jesus. He says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. God never tells his people to do anything that he's not willing to do himself, I might add. He tells us to be generous. And then Paul says, Jesus Christ became poor so that he could make us rich by knowing him, right? So think about this. The one who owns everything, Jesus, the one who's created all, right? The one who's in control of all things. He became poor in every single way imaginable for us. He becomes this poor Jewish man born in a stable, right? For us. Jesus Christ throughout his whole life, he considered nothing to be his own. And here's what was really cool whenever I was looking at this. Everything, he considered everything that he had, everything that he was, every skill that he had, every ability, everything was to display who the Father is. All of his time, everything. He didn't even have money, really, to give out because he was poor, but everything. He, di- he didn't even consider his life to be his own. But instead, he gave up his life as a supreme display of God's glory in saving sinners. Right? He sacrificed his life to display God's justice and to display God's wrath and to display God's love and mercy. Everything about Jesus. He made himself the epitome of poor and dying so that we could be made rich and that he could display God's love towards us. Right? So again, text talks about generosity. So how can we show generosity in our lives in light of you know, our mission as the church to display God's glory and then God showing us his glory in Christ being sacrificial towards us. How can we show our generosity? Text talks about money, so let's talk about that. I kind of don't know how else to jump into this. Tithe. Right? It's like a cuss word for a pastor, I feel like. Right? Tithe. Give your money to the local congregation that you're a part of. This is one of the ways that we can be generous, right? You can give your money to, to Revolution Church. Um, and in doing that, we then take the, take the cash and we pay the bills to keep the church going. Right? Without tithe money, we can't keep the lights on in here. I know we don't own the building, but we can't pay our share of keeping the lights on in here. Um, this is one of the ways that we can, we can serve the church, right? is that we give our money to the church, and the church redistributes it out, right? that we could fund missions in the future if people would start tithing more. I'm not saying that to make anyone feel bad, but just being honest. Like if we could um, just do a lot of good for the believers here and for the community. Right? This, this is one way that we can be generous is to tithe money to the church, and if you don't do it, start. Right? Um, and if you can tithe more, you should really consider consider doing that. But just so you guys know, I'm not just trying to get your cash. I want to give you guys just some more examples of how generosity can play out in our lives. Um, sponsor children. Right? Like, legit. Like, does anyone in here do that? Like, I know a couple of families do that. Yeah, I know a few. Okay, I see a couple of you. Um, sponsor children, right? So think about this. If everything's about sacrificing, we sponsor children, right, where we, we tithe. So we give our money and we sacrifice our money so that the church can continue in its mission, right? We sponsor children so we can sacrifice our money so that others can eat, right? Another thing you could do is, is missions, right? Find a missionary and tell them that you, I'm going to devote giving you 50 or 100 bucks or, or whatever it is that you can, 
you can afford to give, right? And in doing that, we sacrifice our money and be generous so that others can hear the gospel, right? You can give your money to the homeless shelter in Portsmouth, right? You can, and this is really a good idea um, that me and Autumn are going to start doing, is, is you can open up a bank account for other believers, right? And every month, 25, 50 bucks, whatever it is you can afford, open up that bank account and keep putting the money back. And then as you see a believer in need here among us at Revolution Church, you can say, well, I have a few hundred dollars set back. What's your need? I want to help you. Right? That's actually almost exactly what the believers were doing here in this passage that we were looking at. Right? I'm just giving you those ideas just to try to get some stuff in your head. Right? Make it a line item in your budget that I want to be generous towards other people. Right? Just do something. Do something to be generous. Right? And if we're going to be honest, most of us, myself included, can afford to do more than we are currently doing. Can we not? We're not as generous as we actually could be, especially in light of the generosity of Christ towards us. Right, that he gave all, and we like it's like we squeak right whenever we're pulling our wallet out to give like ten bucks to the church or to give ten bucks to someone who actually needs help. One of the most convicting statements I ever heard from a preacher is that we can look at our bank accounts and see a mirror of our hearts. Right, we can actually see what we worship. Right, depending on what we're spending money on, that shows us actually wherever your checkbook is, so is your heart. Right, so so what, what's our spending looking like, right? Is, is, our, is our money constantly being spent selfishly on ourselves, um, on stuff that we don't even need, or are we gravitating more towards a life of service, right? Uh, I'll quote John Wesley here and shock half the congregation. Um, John Wesley actually said this. He said, gain all you can. Work as hard as you can. Gain all you can. And then save all that you can so then you can give all that you can. Right? John Wesley was a godly man. I think that is a great way for us to view our money. Gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Right? We need to do this because the idea of a selfish believer, a tight-fisted believer, is foreign in the New Testament. Right? Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, they're completely bogus ideas. They're, they're, they're countered all the time in the Bible. And, we, and we're actually obligated, I believe, as recipients of God's generosity to be freely giving like this. But I want to take a second and acknowledge something. I know that there are some people in here who, like, legitimately don't have money, right? I know that. I know there are people here on, on government assistance. Um, I know some people here are unemployed or they're, or they're barely getting by. Um, I don't want you to be ashamed at, this, at yourself in this sermon, right? Because God knows if your heart is inclined to give, even if the means to give aren't there, um, Here's a really cool thing that the Lord does, right? In the Old Testament, if you couldn't afford to sacrifice something as expensive as a bull, right, which would have been incredibly costly, the Lord actually makes provisions um, that poorer people could sacrifice doves, right? It was like an income-based sacrificial system, which is super cool from the Lord. So I think God actually gives us the same opportunity um, as New Testament believers, right? There, there are ways that we can and should give that aren't monetary, right? So if you don't have any cash... You can do these things. And if you have cash, guess what? You get to do both, right? And then the, and the other way that we can give is we can actually give of ourselves, right? And this is something that we've talked about a few times um, in this series is we can give of ourselves. We can pour out our lives into other people in spiritual ways, right? Even if you don't have a dime, everyone has time, do we not? Not rhyme to feel like Dr. Seuss. If you don't have a dime, you got time. It's the Baptist in me. I can't help it. Um, Right, but everyone has time that we can give, right? Whether that's time in prayer, 
or whether that's time in, in serving our community, right, through things that Revolution does to reach out, whether that's time in just meeting with another believer and offering our counsel, right, our godly biblical counsel. Um, we can give of ourselves in giving, in, in giving our skills, right? If there's something that I see someone needs help with and I can help meet that need with my skills, then I can give that, right? Our knowledge of Scripture. If you don't have any money, study the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I'll buy you one. Right? We give them away at the church, right? We can study the Bible and acquire knowledge about the Lord and then give that to people. Um, and this is a big one. We can give our friendship to people. We can genuinely care for our brothers and sisters here at Revolution Church. Right? So we should all, even the financially blessed, spend ourselves in these ways. Right? Like I said earlier, this is how Jesus lived. He had no money, but he was constantly meeting the emotional, spiritual, and physical needs of other people. Day in and day out. He would actually have to like intentionally go to get away from the crowd so that he could eat or sleep or pray. Because he was so constantly involved in people's lives, helping them and blessing them. All right, so in, in the passage this evening, we saw the gospel give birth to this common goal and compassion um, in the hearts of God's people. And we see that that goal to display God's glory, led into selfless action, self-sacrificial action, right? True love like God has for us. And then we see as a result of all of that, that there were no needy people in the church. Verse 34, there were no needy among them. Why? Because they all lived to display who God is. Everyone in the community of believers was cared for and loved because the grace of God was shining forth in the lives of God's people. They said, he's self-sacrificial towards me. I want to be self-sacrificial towards you. He gave up his son for me. I want to give up my money for you. I want to give up my time for you. And if we live this way, there will be no needy among us either. Right? I know it sounds like idealistic, right? I get that. And you're like, well, in reality, you know, there's always going to be the poor. And Jesus says that. The poor you will always have with you, for certain. But we can say, like, here among the brothers and sisters at Revolution Church, for all of us who follow Christ here, we can actually make it to where that there are no needy among us if everyone was willing to pull together and meet the needs of people, whether it be financial or emotional or spiritual or whatever it is. And if we do that, we, we would be just like, like exactly what God intended for His church. And that's a true family. We would really fulfill God's design for us. All of that to say this, we must display the caring nature of God to one another. That's basically what this whole sermon boils down to. We must display the self-sacrificial and caring nature of God to us. We must become living representatives of who God is. Right? Peter, actually, it's really cool. We're going to read this passage. Peter, uh, in the New Testament, calls us living stones. Right? So let's check this out, First Peter chapter 2. He says, and you... Talking to believers, you believers are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. And as the scriptures say, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust in him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They, unbelievers, stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you, believers, are not like that. For you are a chosen people. You, are ro- you royal priests, 
You are a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God. For he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, and now you have received God's mercy. I think that last bit, especially at the end, we are a chosen people, chosen by God, that Christ would come and die for us and save us through faith in him. And he's made us a holy nation, this holy group of people, God's own possession, so that we can show people the goodness of God. Not only out there, but in here among the believers. That we can show mercy that we have received to one another. So go and be the church. Go and be the church. Live out the mission of being a living representation of God. And bear in mind that you ought not be afraid to give. Right? Because in Christ, we've received everything from God and more than we could ever need.